Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, coming to you from our studio in Johannesburg. I'm Michael Apple. It's Thursday, the 27th of January. With me this hour are my colleagues Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart. They've got the latest in your news headlines and a look at what's going on in the markets. On today's program, our partner, the Financial Times, brings you the latest on the U.S. Fed's decision to hike interest rates in March and also vaping as a growth industry. I know Justin Rowe Roberts touched on that a couple of weeks ago. Good or bad thing getting involved there. More on that later. Then Biz News editor Alec Hogg spoke with professional adventurer and author Peter Van Ketz. This is a guy who rode solo across the Atlantic and has done a host of other superhuman things. He's also one of the great guest speakers booked for the upcoming Biz News Investment Conference in March. Nadia, you helped put that all together, the interview, I should say. What did you make of the strength of the human spirit and the inspiration that comes from a man like Peter? Yes. Just that, that's what I took away, the strength of the human spirit, because he makes a point that he's not a natural athlete. But for someone to row across the Atlantic solo, 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off, that's how he did it for something like over 70 days. For mind over matter as a concept to apply it to someone that's not a natural athlete, it, you know, it blew my mind. It really, it, 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 it stayed with me. Something to think about. I think it applies to all of us in some way. It's the isolation. It's making friends with, with schools of fish. It's the isolation that would kill me, but th- that's exactly that. It's a, it's the strength of, of Peter Van Ketz's mind uh, after spending so much time alone. Justin, investment strategist Magnus Haystack, you spoke to him today. What's on his radar? Mike, it's time to ring the alarm bells. Magnus Haystack, uh, renowned for being one of South Africa's most hardest-hitting money managers. He's been extremely successful the last decade, the same time frame that many money managers in South Africa haven't been. Magnus has been very bullish on the U.S. theme, healthcare, biotech, technology stocks. He says that he is mulling over a change in strategy. This is a big, big moment in time for Brenters that have done so successfully well via their technology holdings. He said that there might be something, there might be a pivot from the United States to Europe and emerging markets. So conversations to follow with Magnus for sure. He's mulling over it and he's just finding out more information about when to possibly make the change. All right. Thanks, Justin. Let's jump over to our news desk with Nadia Swat. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. A presidential advisory panel has warned against a basic income grant for South Africa, telling President Cyril Ramaphosa that the grant would be incredibly risky and detrimental to the country's economy. It also questioned a report commissioned by the Department of Social Development, which said that such a grant would be sustainable. The experts on the panel said the report was technically flawed and vastly underestimated the risks involved. Ramaphosa has been under pressure to introduce the basic income grant to replace the temporary 350 rand COVID relief grant. 
the basic income grant has been suggested to start at 350 rand and gradually scale up to the food poverty line. While the CCMA has made a favorable ruling on the first case of an employee fired for refusing to vaccinate, conflict resolution experts and legal advisors have warned companies to tread carefully. The CCMA sided with the company that dismissed the worker, but this is expected to only be the beginning, with the matter likely to move to the Labour Court, Supreme Court, or even the Constitutional Court. The experts also said that the specifics of the employee's relationship and history with the company are not known. Companies are being advised to move forward with consideration and tact when dealing with workers who refuse to vaccinate. Police Minister Becky Tele says that his department is fighting a losing battle trying to keep unregistered firearms out of the hands of criminals. In the meantime, high-caliber firearms like R5 rifles are being used by criminals in South Africa to commit murder. Only police and military personnel are authorized to use those weapons. Investigations revealed that these firearms were stolen from police stations aided by SAPS members. Taylor said that the digitization of the firearm registry would speed the process up and assist in keeping track of guns. Thanks, Nadia. Justin, before you get into your market report, you spitballed U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell's comments about possible interest rate hikes or likely hikes in March with Pitful Yoon today. He's unfazed, unmoved, actually unimpressed. I think there's something more deeper to this, Mike, and I think central banks all over the world need to be cognizant. Inflation is the primary risk to markets at the moment, but worse than that, it's a regressive tax on the poor. Wealthy people, they can shield themselves by investing in assets that perform well during inflationary periods, but poor people don't have that luxury. They spend all their income on the basic necessities. And I've got a two-minute clip out of my conversation with Pitt that outlines that. Pit Fulhoun, CounterPoint Value Fund Manager. Pit, the Fed spoke last night. Before we get into the implications of his policy decisions to come, let's talk about the policy decisions that have been made and where we are at currently. Investment opportunities aside, with inflation where it's at now, especially in the U.S., is that not aggravating wealth inequality between the poor and the rich, i.e. the poorer are getting poorer as a result of inflation and the rich are getting richer and how does this change yeah i think that's spot on i think this whole um uh quantitative easing process by the fed over the past 10 to 12 years has uh ex- exacerbated the inequality gap in the us there's no doubt about that um and as inflation picks up um, it will uh, it will uh, continue to do that. Uh, inflation, as you know, is primarily a tax on the poor. It's a very regressive tax on the poor. Uh, rich people can shield themselves in, to a certain extent from inflation if they choose to do so, whereas poor people can't. Can't they spend 100% of their income on the basic necessities? Um, so they're very exposed to inflation. So it does continue to widen that inequality gap. There's no doubt about it. Um, but the Fed is powerless. I mean, I, I, I think uh, we, all of us, the market is uh, spending far too much time thinking about the, what the Fed is saying and doing, uh, whereas I don't think it matters. I think they are completely powerless to do anything. Um, they've become a political tool in the US and they are subject to political oversight and they will do what their political masters tell them to do. The JSE All Share Index was lower at 73,000. 
The rand was steady against all the major currencies to 15 rand 32 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 50 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 9 cents to the euro. Fresh out the news, the South African Reserve Bank has hiked rates by 25 basis points. That's in line with consensus expectations. Gold is low at $1,809 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 29,000 Rand. Brent crude is up at $90.20 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 560,000 Rand per coin. In the price action, Sasol, the inflation hedge, moves forward again by 5%. On the downside, gold miners Harmony and Anglo hard hurt by the gold spot price moving down. Transaction capital and NASP is also lower. And in the financial news, Africa's biggest grocery retailer, ShopRite, reported double-digit growth in sales to the six months to end January on Thursday, despite the fallout from the civil unrest that affected 231 of its stores, mostly in KZN and Gauteng. Total merchandise sales rose 10% to 91.1 billion rand year-on-year, ShopRite said in an operational statement. Excluding the negative effects of the temporary closure of liquor stores in SA due to lockdown restrictions, total sales of merchandise rose 8.2%. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, January 27th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Federal Reserve said it'll be humble and nimble as it signals it'll start raising rates in March. And vaping has been a hot sector for investors in tobacco-friendly China. But then Beijing started cracking down. I think also it just is another one of these cautionary tales for investors and for the markets, which always jump on these growth industries in China. But they just turn around and the whiplash can be so fast. But first, we'll talk about Tesla and why record profits didn't satisfy investors. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Tesla raked in $2.3 billion last quarter. The electric car maker reported those record earnings yesterday, and it is 65% higher than the same quarter the previous year. Here's the FT San Francisco correspondent Patrick McGee. It's really amazing if you're taking like a five-year view, how they've actually managed to accomplish this, get through a supply chain crisis. It just is remarkable that Tesla really still has the EV market to some extent, like to itself. I mean, if you recall, Tesla was plagued for years for never having, you know, back-to-back profitable quarters. Now they've got 10 back-to-back profitable quarters. And you know, I, I have, I've actually mocked them in recent months because not only are the, are the profits ballooning, but like they're not even firing on all cylinders, right? They're dealing with supply chain shortages. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of things that aren't going as planned at Tesla, and yet enough things are going right that they're sort of sweeping the competition in electric vehicles and being rewarded to a degree we've never seen in automotive history on Wall Street. So I want to touch on something you said right there, Patrick, and that is that uh, the company yesterday said that supply chain issues are actually going to weigh on the company throughout 2022. And right after that, the share price for Tesla dropped more than 5%. It shot up right after that. But it, it seems like it's something that's on investors' minds. So I think what spooked investors was, one, there was a, a miss on 
uh, net income. So net income for last quarter, the holiday quarter, was $2.3 billion. And that's up a staggering 760% from a year ago. But Wall Street sort of got ahead of itself and projected $2.55 billion. So, you know, it's hard to say that's a disappointment, but you could see why, you know, a trading algorithm might sort of <laughs> demand a sell uh, based on that miss. The other thing, and I think this is really the big macro picture here, is as deftly as Tesla has navigated the supply chain crisis, uh, it very prominently high up in its press release said that um, supply chain constraints would weigh on its results, quote, through 2022. And, you know, as an Apple reporter looking ahead to Apple results later today, uh, that certainly caught my attention because supply chain woes are just hurting even the most sophisticated companies. So I don't want to be the doom and gloom guy here, Patrick, but uh, Tesla's share price has been down more than 20% this year. Is there any concern that the company might be losing its momentum? The $3 trillion company I follow, Apple, is also down about 12% this year. And, you know, basically just the biggest winners of the pandemic are seeing a hit as, you know, we have rumors of the Federal Reserve tightening uh, or there's just sort of a, a shakiness about uh, everything from Russia-Ukraine tensions to supply chain shortages. So, you know, in a sense, companies that did the best in the last year or two are seeing some of the fastest falls right now. You know, whether that has any long-term momentum, who knows? It's it's hard to say anything disappointing about the Tesla stock price when the market cap right now is $940 billion. Patrick McGee is our San Francisco correspondent. So as Patrick just mentioned, the prospect of rising interest rates are on the minds of investors. And we got more details about those rate hikes yesterday from the Fed. It signaled that it could start raising rates as soon as March. It is a clear shift away from supporting the pandemic economy and more of a focus to fighting inflation. Here's the takeaway from our Washington bureau chief, James Politi. Powell is really gearing up now for a tightening cycle, and he set the stage for it yesterday. Quantitative easing, the whole bond buying program that the Fed launched uh, at the heart of the pandemic, that's going to come to an end in early March, even before the next meeting. And the rate hikes will proceed in a way that may well be more aggressive than it was during the last sort of recovery. Powell said that the Fed's going to be humble and nimble about it, and they're going to adapt uh, their policy based on the economic circumstances. And if inflation is worse than expected or higher than expected for longer, they're going to probably hike rates at a more aggressive pace. And if there's a new setback on the employment front, for instance, then they're going to they're going to hike more cautiously, and it's going to be. Uh, sort of a much slower pace of normalization of policy. So the Fed also said it will end the pandemic bond buying program in March. This has been a huge part of the pandemic stimulus policy. James, how big of a moment is this? It will be a big moment because the Fed launched the latest bond buying program and right at the start of the pandemic. Uh, it was a big deal um, last spring when the Fed said it was opening to sort of slowing the pace of those bond purchases. Finally, they're, they're going to wind them down. And that was always seen as sort of the precursor to rate hikes. And now, you know, that sequence is clear. The, the, the bond buys are going to end um, and the rate hikes will begin. And there will be a discussion about the balance sheet of the Fed, but that will be focused on whether the, the central bank should start to shrink it. 
So, James, what do you make of the market's reaction to Powell's comments? The S&P 500 was up most of the day. And then as Powell was talking, it just dropped, right? And, and it actually ended the day in the red. So I'm wondering what you think it was about Powell's speech that may have dampened the mood on Wall Street. Well, I think um, there was a certain hawkishness to Powell, a certain concern about inflation, which sort of shone through his policy outlook and also his words. Um, he mentioned that the, the inflation picture had gotten worse since December. The Fed was going to you know, launch this tightening cycle potentially at a fairly aggressive pace, though not necessarily 50 basis points off the bat. It's probably going to be um, a, a simple 25 basis points hike. But certainly there's a sense that you know, inflation is the main risk and he didn't try to sugarcoat that in any way. And that concern may have, you know, worried the markets. James Pleady is the FT's Washington bureau chief. In China, another big company is feeling the heavy hand of Beijing's regulators. This time, it's Huabao International Holdings. Its shares this week tumbled more than 65% on news that authorities were investigating a subsidiary called Huabao Flavors and Fragrances. Our China correspondent, Ed White, told us a bit about the woman who runs it. She's known as China's vaping queen. For someone who has been worth seven or eight billion dollars, Chu Lam Yu, or Ju Lin Yao, as she's referred to in China, uh, has managed to keep a fairly low profile for many years now. She started Huabao, which is a flavoring and fragrance additive company, back in 1996, so when she was in her mid-twenties. And she's been referred to over the years as one of China's wealthiest or richest self-made women. Now, the company does sell to food producers, but it appears that this wealth has been linked to the growth of sales to tobacco companies. Now, that's including most recently products used in e-cigarettes and vapes. And vaping has become a big business in China and a boon for stockholders. Prior to this week, shares in Huabao, which is Chu's company, had surged about sevenfold over the past two years. Now, while much of that game was really wiped uh, in one trading session this week uh, with the announcement of this investigation into the company's founder, similar drops have been seen by other companies in the sector over recent months and years. I think also it just is another one of these cautionary tales for investors and for the markets, which always jump on these growth industries in China, but they just turn around and the whiplash can be so fast, you know, to have this company lose sort of 70% of its market cap in one trading session in Hong Kong this week was just remarkable to see. And all of that came from one announcement by the company with no detail. And that to me just sums up what we're seeing so much of in China at the moment. Ed White is the FT's China correspondent. Before we go, something else that's really big in China? iPhones. Apple just reclaimed its position as the top smartphone seller spot in China for the first time in six years. China is the world's largest phone market, and Apple now has nearly a quarter of it. Apple's smartphone shipments rose as its competitor, Huawei, saw sales pretty much collapse due in part to U.S. sanctions. Apple's also stayed in good favor with Beijing and avoided the anti-foreign sentiment that's hurt sales at other Western companies. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, Peter von Ketz will be giving the first talk at the Biz News Investment Conference from the 1st to the 4th of March. And, well, Peter, good to be talking with you. I presume you're at home in East London. <laughs> yes, I am, Alec, and it's quite amazing. When, 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 when I get introduced as a person that uh, lives in East London, uh, generally speaking, people give me kind of a glaze. They get that like glazed look over their eyes. <laughs> Because PE and East London are uh, somehow seem to be the same city <laughs> when we're thinking of the Eastern Cape, <laughs> oh, and, and very different cities as we as we well yeah, know. Very, um, very yeah, but you you're close to the beach, you're close to nature, and that appears to be your driving force. But maybe let's just go back a little bit before you became a full time adventurer. You were actually a school teacher. What drew you to that? Yeah, I think that um, teaching has always been an important part of my life. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose, Alec, if you had asked me when I was at school, what were my chances of becoming a teacher? I would probably say zero. But, you know, life morphs and things change and you grow. And I really became uh, interested in education. And then I, I put my heart and soul into it. You know, I, when I finished school, I spent about eight years traveling around the world. I did two years in the army and then I changed quite tremendously during that time. And then I started studying teaching and then I went and taught at Saks down in Cape Town. Um, and then when I moved up here to East London, I taught at a little school called Lillyfontaine School and uh, set that up as an adventure based school, uh, the high school section and junior school section, uh, eventually. And, um, it's going amazingly. Um, at that school now, and I left teaching in 2005. Adventure-based? You know, Alec, I, I think a lot of, a lot of big schools, and excuse me if, if you're watching this or listening to this and you, you're, you're really into rugby and cricket, and, and it's amazing, and it is good. Um, but I think that there are so many young people that fall through the cracks in a system that are, you know, they're not good rugby players, they're not good cricket players or hockey players or tennis players, but they are good at something. Um, and adventure just really creates an opportunity for people to shine. It builds confidence. It builds resilience. Um, and obviously, those are such an important part of our lives as we get into um, our adult lives and our business lives and our corporate and executive world. The Eighth Summit, which I've been trying to find copies of, Peter. I think you need to speak to your marketing guys. It's a brilliant book. And, and I don't say that lightly. I, there are over 100,000 books that are published every year. Of those, uh, no more than a hundred. So it's a very small fraction are actually worth reading because uh, a lot of those books are pushed out as marketing materials and so on. But, but yours, it took the scales from my eyes on the whole area of adventuring. Before we, we, we talk about that very first journey or your incredible journey of, of rowing across the Atlantic, had you always been pulled towards that? Were you always wanting to do something different and maybe as a boy, were you a scout? Were you a rover? What shaped you in this direction? Um, Alec, you know, I don't want to sound cliched, but I think all of us have a sense of adventure in our lives. Um, and, and I think um, personally for myself, I grew up um, in Southeast Africa, Namibia. And as a child, it was, it was quite a fantastic place to spend um, your days as a young boy. And we used to have all sorts of weird 
like gangs used to go and collect snakes and scorpions and play with them and you know who could find the biggest scorpion so i'm starting off really really small here so there was always this excitement of you know i want to get home but then i want to get out into the bush and i want to go and explore and i want to go and find and i want to go and and discover and, and build little dens and um just be this adventurous kid you know um, and then from there, it just grows into something bigger. Now we are, all of a sudden, we're going and doing holidays or we're going camping in the mountains or we're going for five-day hikes, you know, um, along the coast. And then eventually, it's things get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happened with me in my life uh, until I got to the stage where I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to continue on this trajectory, I'm going to have to do this full time um, because there's no other time to do anything else. And so you start becoming a little bit creative um, and, and all entrepreneurs will know what I'm speaking about. Even being a professional adventurer requires a certain amount of, uh, of entrepreneurial skills. And, uh, and, I, and I think you just grow and you make things, if you're really passionate about what you do, and that also sounds cliched, but it's real, um, you can really put anything together. And that is the spirit of adventure. You know, those olden days explorers like Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton, they were all amazingly famous and wonderful. And I think that over the years, modern explorers and adventurers, um, the, the kind of national backing that they, uh, that they used to um, have so much has kind of fallen by the wayside. And, and I think because of that, because there's not so much attention given to, you know, big modern explorers, that uh, people in general have kind of lost that real sense of adventure, you know, the, because they're not, you know, in grips with it the whole time. I mean, Scott's expedition to the South Pole and, and Shackleton's as well, Shackleton's amazing story, gripped the world for years, like really, really, because there was no like Facebook or uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or anything like that then. Um, so they really relied on the story when they got back. But the sense of adventure that people had in those days was was profound. And I think that a lot of us have kind of lost that over the years. I've been just so privileged, Alec, to be a South African that's been able to go and experience such wonderful expeditions. When I say wonderful, I've got to just warn you that they are, most of them are generally extremely difficult. Um, and if you had to say to me, are there a lot of fun? I would go, <clears throat> not a whole lot of fun, but, you know, finishing them is, is, uh, that sense of satisfaction is huge. So adventure, I think, is the basis of all of our lives, of all of our, um, businesses, uh, those people that are entrepreneurs, I think there are quite a few entrepreneurs coming to uh, the business conference, looking forward to meeting them and sharing some of my stories with them as well. And um, they all understand what adventure is. It's an integral part of their business. I suppose the obvious question is, how do you fund all of this? And you've got to be entrepreneurial to make it, make sure that you, you can uh, afford sure. to row across the Atlantic and, and to walk sure. to the South Pole and so on. Sure. Let's go through your adventures, the ones you write about in the Eighth Summit. Well, you, you tell us the story of how you got to want or drawn in to rowing across the Atlantic for the first time. I was busy planning an expedition from Madagascar to South Africa. I wanted to kayak um, across that uh, Mozambique Channel. Um, and it's about 380 kilometers. And that would be an unsupported kayak. So a nonstop, quite dangerous, um, obviously, because, you know, there's lots of current and um, we'd have to have chosen the weather well. In any case, so I was busy planning that. 
And I was paddling out at one of my favorite surf spots, Queensbury Bay, just up the road here with a good friend of mine, Hannes Fenter. And um, we were just paddling out, talking, joking, having fun. And as we got to the back line, was a person that I'd seen many times before, but had ne- never actually met. And Hannes introduced me. He said, hey, um, Pete, this is Billy. Billy wants to uh, row across the Atlantic Ocean. And Billy, this is Pete. He's busy planning a you know, kayaking trip across the Mozambique Channel. You guys have got lots to talk about. And off you went. So we started talking and Billy and I started chatting. And eventually he said to me, you know, Pete, I'm actually looking for a partner to come and do this. Uh, it's, it was the Atlantic Growing Race, the Woodville Atlantic Growing Race at the time. Um, would you like to do it with me? Um, so I said to him, um, Billy, y- yeah, I would. Um, but my wife, Kim, was pregnant at the time. She was seven months pregnant. And I said, there's no ways I can go home now and say, hey, Kim, you know what? I've got this great idea. I want to go and row across the Atlantic. <clears throat> I said, so let's wait. Uh, so for the time being, no, I'd love to, but let's wait. You know, maybe when um, the baby's born, Hannah would be born, um, you know, then things would be different. In any case, I said, phone me six months later. And six months later, he phoned me. And he said, Pete, I'm still looking for somebody. And I said, okay, let me go and chat to Kim. And, you know, Kim's a super important part of my team. We had this long conversation, difficult conversation, um, but a good one. And I ended up uh, phoning Billy back and saying, you know, Billy, I'm in. And so we started planning and preparing for, um, it's a five and a half thousand kilometer race from um, Lagomera and the Canary Islands. So it's just off the coast of Morocco, uh, across the southern part of the North Atlantic Ocean to Antigua and the Caribbean. So it's kind of in the middle of the Caribbean islands. Um, yeah, so nonstop um, unsupported, unassisted, which means nobody's assisting you. So you don't get onto any other vessel. You don't see anybody. Nobody can give you food or water or anything. So you completely are alone for that journey. And so in that conversation with Billy, we decided that we would like to win the race. If we were going to go and do it, we'd like to win it. Um, you know, if you're going to put that much effort in and it is a race, then, you know, let's go break a few records and let's go race it. And that's what you did. We, uh, got Tim Noakes as part of our team and um, he helped us just with um, a little bit of, uh, you know, physical training, um, you know, some plans and some food plans. Um, that was uh, before the whole banting thing came, became quite famous. Um, and um, we started training. We spent two years training, getting our boat. Um, and then we went and rode the race, hour and a half on. So this is how we rode, an hour and a half on, hour and a half off. Uh, 24 hours a day. Um, so there wasn't a second during that row that one of us wasn't rowing. Um, and we did that for 50 days and 12 hours. And we won the race. There were 23 boats taking part in the race um, from all over the world. And um, it was uh, an incredible amount of suffering and, and struggle and sacrifice <laughs> to get there. But um, I, I suppose any good story uh, comes hand in hand with those three things. Um, and, you know, we were mentally and physically prepared um, for those uh, challenges that we faced. And, and it was because of those things that we were able to, to win that race and break the world record for that particular race. So that's how it all started, like the big expeditions. That's how it all started. Um, and then um, straight after that, that row, I remember meeting up with Kim um, on the quayside in Antigua. And as I got in, you know, it's a long time to be out at sea with another man on a seven-meter rowing boat. I grabbed Kim. I put my arms around and I said, Kim, if I ever say I want to do something like that again, you've got to stop me. <laughs> 
And she looked at me and she said, yeah, Pete, don't worry. I absolutely will. <laughs> and so, um, and the story, know, con weeks, con the story continues, uh, because that, that certainly, um, wasn't the, the development, but just to, just to ask you on that before we move away from it, this race, is it still held every year? In fact, um, if you, if you want to, it's quite interesting. Um, the guys are busy. I was rowing, I was watching a little video this morning. The guys are busy arriving in Antigua as we speak. Um, literally the fifth boat has come in. Um, and so the first boat came in about two days ago. Um, and you know, over the next few weeks, the boats will start arriving. Um, <clears throat> is there so, a big prize at the end of the day? No, there's no is, prize. There's no, no. prize. So no, what no is, prize. what is the motivation then to do it? <laughs> I suppose, um, you know, it's, it's quite a big challenge. Um, it's, it's quite unique rowing across an ocean. Um, there, there are so many things that happen to you while you're out at sea and while you're rowing that are just so beautiful. The connection with the planet, the connection with the ocean, stars, um, just everything is, is absolutely, it's sublime. And, um, I suppose the, the big physical challenge is amazing. Um, and if you have the inclination and if you've got the time and you can actually put it together, it's, it's something really worth going to do if, you know, the sea is your thing. Um, which it is mine. Um, and, um, so, so, you know, do the guys win money winning the comrades? I'm not sure. I think it's also, yeah, yeah I think challenge. it's like a medal, you know. You know, so I think there's an element of, of ego in that as well. I mean, I hate to say that. Um, but it is nice winning a race and, and breaking a world record. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of pride that you can, um, associate with, you know, doing something like that. Um, and you know, as a professional adventurer, that, that is something that's, that ticks many, many, many boxes. Um, what a wonderful adventure it is. Um, but as I, again, as I said, it's like lots of suffering, um, and 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 um, many things that big CEOs uh, of sorry that CEOs of big corporates would experience. You know, away from home for a long time, uh, long hours, uh, sleeplessness. Um, you know, working with teams of people. There's there's a there's definitely a, a cross pollination of you know um, experiences with being an adventurer and, and, and um, running big teams. And there uh, you were, the you were in a team, you were a duo. There were two of you rowing. And uh, despite saying that your wife, Kim, who you can tell us about, she her, herself is an adventurer. So we'll, we'll get onto that in a moment, telling her that you, that she should stop you from doing it again. You did go and do it again, but this time do it, doing it on your own. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so when I finished that first row, um, it kind of dawned on me that no African had ever rowed any ocean solo before. And that kind of needed to be done. And, um, you know, I, I suppose it's like saying to, um, somebody who's just given birth, um, naturally, would you like to do that again straight away? They'd say, no, whatever happens. No, I don't want to do that again. But then, over time, things wear off and um, you start just remembering the amazing things um, that happen and and you start yearning for that adventure again. And that's what happened with me. 
Um, so I decided to put something together and see if we could, um, you know, get the right sponsors and build a boat to do a, the solo row. And two years later, there I was on my new boat that I named Yamazela. It's a closer word, uh, which means endurance or perseverance. Um, and and I did I took part in the same race. That race was then the Woodvale Transatlantic Rowing Race. Um, it is now the Talisker Ocean Challenge. Uh, now it happens every year, but in those days it was happening every second year. You didn't win that one. Uh, no, I didn't win that one. And actually, that race was um, quite a um, quite an epic race because it changed the nature of ocean rowing. Um, and <clears throat> one of the participants that took part in the race built this boat um, that would really be able to utilize the wind um, to an incredible degree. Um, and so it, it almost became unbeatable to, you know, so I was rowing a rowing boat, like literally um, a rowing boat with a little cabin on it, um, which which made it still rowing. And they built a boat that was designed to, catch as much wind as possible without actually putting a sail up. So um, uh, the person that won the solo row um, beat, there were four-man teams, there was an eight-man team, there were two-man teams, and he beat all of them by two weeks, um, which kind of gives you, and I was rowing hour and a half on, hour and a half off, 24 hours a day. I did that for 76 days on that row. Um, and... And I think from then, I mean, there was, there's just been such turmoil in the, um, the rowing world at the moment. Um, you know, from those people who, who like to say that I've rowed it and those people who say that I've used, you know, this craft to row it across. So it has changed. It has morphed. Um, but I'm happy, you know, um, the, uh, I, you know, I, I rode every single stroke on that race as if I was going to win the race. Um, I mean, I came second. Um, I think I was 12th boat. There were 52 boats that year um, that raced. So 12th out of all the two-man and four-man boats is is not bad. <laughs> Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And and yeah. what a story. If uh, yeah. in in the book, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it, but uh, there was a lot that you explain uh, that happened during that time. But the one thing that has stayed with me, practically speaking. I'm not sure if you saw the Netflix movie, uh, My Octopus Teacher. Well, after that, I certainly never ate calamari again. Um, and after reading your book, I've, there's no way I'll have a Dorado ever again. <laughs> Tell us that, that story. Alec, it was, um, one of, one of the, the most incredible experiences. You know, we, we think we know the animal kingdom, um, and we haven't even touched the surface. Uh, and, I had one storm. Let me let me tell you this uh, quick story. I had I had one storm um, during the solar row, and it lasted six days, five nights, and I was on parachute anchor for that time because um, the wind was and everything was against me. If it was behind me, I would have done something else. Um, and so um, straight after that storm, I noticed uh, Dorado underneath my boat, um, and I, I didn't quite know. I knew that they were coming to get shade there, and they use it as refuge and a place to hunt from. So they hunt mainly flying fish. That's what they eat. Um, and um, straight after the storm, as I was rowing, um, you know, every sunrise and sunset, I would see these fish jump, these Dorado, jumping 20, 30 meters away from my boat, out the water, making, splashing, making noise. And every now and then I would, I would hear them and they'd come and hit my rudder hard. Bam, bam, bam. And I, 
just really didn't understand. And I was on a carbon boat, so it makes a lot of noise, you know. It sounds like steel. And, um, and as the weeks went past, this would happen every sunrise and sunset. These fish would jump out the water. Um, and as the weeks went past, this would happen. They would get closer and closer and closer to the boat until I could literally see their eyes, you know. Um, and I, I started working out that these guys um, were not just jumping out the water, that they were actually connecting with me. That So they would jump out and make eye contact with me. Okay, so but not like this. Okay, they can't do that. It's, you know, the one eye. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd look a little bit stupid. And um, <clears throat> and um, and I, I, I started realizing that these guys were connecting with me because if I wasn't on deck during that time, Alec, they would um, jump out the water and smack their bodies hard against the water. Bam, bam, bam. All swim up to my rudder and hit my rudder while I was in the cabin hard until I got out. Until I made eye contact with them, they wouldn't stop. And as soon as I got out on deck, um, they would stop. Now, it might just be me, and I may just be projecting, but I don't think I am. Um, because this happened for the six weeks until the finish line. Um, so from that storm, middle of the Atlantic, six weeks later, arrive in Antigua, and they're still underneath my boat, still doing exactly the same thing. I finished at 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, and at six o'clock that morning, I had my last swim with them. So three hours, I mean, I'm literally right next to the island. Um, had my last swim with them and I said my goodbye. So every day for those six weeks, I would jump overboard when it got really, really hot because it can get hot. Um, and I'd swim with them and they'd swim around me. And so they'd just look at me as they swim around me. And sunrise, sunset, they would jump out the water, make eye contact with me. A theme that comes through in your book uh, continuously is this idea of mind over matter in the, the power of the mind, the, the, the potential that we have as a species, as human beings? You know, it's, it's something that's fascinated me, Alec, and, I, and it's a subject that I'm going to be speaking about at the, um, at the conference is, you know, what are we able to achieve? Have, have we kept our abilities? Or are we uncapped human beings? You know, I've always considered myself and still consider myself just to be an ordinary person. I don't have anything. Um, I'm not a... Um, one of those natural athletes. Um, and I learned very quickly early on and, and particularly, uh, just after I finished school, um, in my life that, that, um, anything that is noteworthy, worthy of telling a story, anything great that we want to achieve in life is going to have to be, um, um, gotten through, uh, you know, suffering that there's, there's definitely hard stuff that's going to happen to us. Um, and our ability to overcome that is not a physical thing. Um, and that the battles that we face are won and lost inside our heads. Let me give you an example of this. Um, rowing, it's uh, four o'clock in the morning. It's day 50. You're on your own. You're sitting on a rowing boat. Your hands are blistered and raw almost to the bone. You'll see pictures of it at the conference. Um, your backside um, has got boils or pressure sores um, um, on it. You won't see pictures of that at the conference. Those are for special friends. <laughs> and, um, and at that time, there are thoughts going through your head. And for me, th those, that four o'clock in the morning session was just the hardest. You know, I think, you know, it's physically impossible to row another 24 hours like this. You know, your mind starts playing tricks with you. You know, the best thing that you can do right now is pull those oars in and go and sleep, you know. 
and rest until the sun comes up and then maybe get on the satellite phone and get somebody to come and, you know, get you the hell out of there passing ship because that's what you're doing because that's what it feels like. We've all been there at that, you know, at that point in our lives where those voices start speaking to us. But, but what makes us, um, change? What makes us go, okay, no, I need to finish this shift. I need to stick to that whole discipline thing, you know. Um, and I've realized that, um, so let me give you an example. So when I'm finished that rowing shift, so I'd finish it an hour and a half and I'd go rest for an exactly hour and a half. And during that hour and a half, I would have that phone call. I would make that satellite phone call to Kim. Okay, so that was one of the treats that I looked forward to. So I'd speak to Kim after that last shift, that sun, uh, just before the sun. The sun comes up and I have breakfast. Those three things happen. The very next shift, I'm sitting back on that seat and I'm rowing like a beast again, as if that 24 hours previously hadn't happened. Um, and so, so what is the difference between that time and that four o'clock in the morning session uh, three hours earlier or, or hour and a half earlier? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's been a chemical change in your mind and there have been triggers that have allowed those chemicals to change the way you operate and the way you think. Um, so, I mean, you hear things like mind over matter and, you know, there's lots of cliched stuff around that that we could speak about, but it is very real. We absolutely have control over how um, we handle things, um, you know, internally. Um, it's much easier to do that when you're faced by a challenge um, as opposed to being faced by adversity. Adversity is very different to challenges because challenges are self-imposed, mainly, generally speaking. So when I'm rowing, those things are challenges for me. Adversity is things like my doctor telling me I've got cancer or, you know, somebody dying or me, you know, breaking my leg uh, during the row. There's, those are different kinds of things. And they also can be handled in your head, but it's, it's, a, lot, uh, it's a lot harder. <laughs> so the Eighth Summit is really, the book, The Eighth Summit, is really about those three expeditions, the first row, second row, and South Pole, you know, all the lessons that I've learned from that, that, that helped me cope and helped me deal with, um, you know, the struggles that we have internally inside our heads. Um, and then also it's, you know, it's, there are inspirational anecdotes and inspirational lessons on very basic, um, uh, universal laws that apply to us being able to take control, um, over our minds. So the eighth summit, you know, the seven continents, um, climbers want to climb the highest peak on each continent. There's seven of them. And the eighth summit is us. Uh, and, and I suppose that's like what that is probably one of the most important things that we can do in our lives is really understanding that we have no limits. Um, and, um, that there are things that we can do and processes that we can put in place in our lives to make sure that we can achieve the, Things um, that we want to uh, that we set out uh, to achieve, terms and conditions apply. So you know it's such an inspirational thing because there are so many people that sit in their lives. They they go to work every single day. They really hope that something great is going to happen, and obviously it doesn't unless you make it happen. There's so many people that sit with such great um, aspirations for their lives, dreams, um, and and hopes, um, and they they don't get it together because they are worried about what happens if I can't. But that sense that it doesn't matter <laughs> what happens if you just start the journey. 
and you push and you do it. If you fail, just get up and, you know, be tenacious, be resilient. Um, resilience is all about recovering from failure. I think that's, it's really inspired me. So I've had expeditions in my life where I've been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And every now and then, you know, something happens and you, you, you go a couple of steps backwards. But uh, got to remember that when you are in the arena, that's the most important thing, you know, um, and that's where we are going to be triumphant. Whether we fail, whether we get back up again and go, or whether we succeed, it's, it doesn't matter. You know, the credit belongs to those people. Magnus Haystack, Brentos Wealth Management founder. Magnus, really interesting times in the market at the moment. You've been in the market for decades, Magnus, and seen these down, kind of downturns many times in the past. What's your take on what's currently happening out there? Well, uh, Justin, thanks for reminding me how long I've been in this business. And yes, I've seen some very, very bad downturns. The worst was, of course, uh, 21st of October uh, 1987, when the market fell 22% in one day. So this is a little puppy as far as downturns go. It's really a blip on the radar screen. But what we've seen in, in, in the last three weeks, and has been signaled by many, many people uh, during the course of last year, that the end of free money was getting closer and closer. The U.S. Fed has been pumping money into the system as a result of the COVID collapse. And we're talking about trillions of dollars into the American economy. But people and experts are saying this cannot continue and the minute we had that inflationary spiral and it's not stopping yet, I think the market started taking it seriously. And, and initially the Fed said it's transitory and it's not going to last. But now it's accepted that the U.S. inflation of about 5 to 6%, which is the highest since 1992, is going to be with us for a longer time than we suspect. Everything but everything in the United States has gone up very dramatically. Gasoline, lumber, oil, uh, palm seeds, you name it, it's gone up because of the amount of money that the consumer has in his or her pocket and they are spending it. Motor car prices, second-hand motor car prices is, is now more expensive than a new car because you can't get a new car so you're buying second-hand cars. So the world has to adjust to what is happening in the United States in terms of free money higher interest rates, and what that will do to global markets and currencies as well. Magnus, does this more persistent inflation and likely interest rate hike cycle make you worried about those same tech healthcare businesses that have been five baggers for you in the last decade about their prospects going forward? Because we know that inflation reduces the purchasing power of money and these growth companies are valued um, less demandingly as they would in a non-inflationary period? You know, that is the, the trillion-dollar question right now. Are we seeing a move from growth uh, to value? And value stocks is getting a lot of attraction and a lot of people are moving some money into value stocks as opposed to growth stocks. I haven't made up my mind yet, and I'm even having some dinner with Pitfull Yun, our, our, our value bull, and who's doing very well. So maybe I can get some more insights from, from, from Pitt. But there definitely is a shift of money in the world. But there's another shift, which is perhaps even more important, 
and that is that over the last 10 to 12 years, most of the stock market's uh, excitement or growth has been concentrated on the United States markets, the Wall Street, uh, the S&P 500, uh, uh, NASDAQ, Dow Jones, etc. In fact, U.S. was the place to be for the last 12 years, uh, with Europe and the rest of the world lagging fairly badly. But now the feeling is this run could be over. So it's not only a rotation between between growth and value, it's also a rotation or possibly a rotation away from the United States to Europe, to Japan, and perhaps even to emerging markets. So it's 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 a little bit of a, a pot, and the pot is boiling. We don't know what's going to come out at the end of the day, but you need to be very careful. I think the easy money has been made. That is no that in my mind, no no question about that. The easy money, the ones that you referred to earlier, and we are telling our clients forget about fifteen twenty percent year after year. We are looking at three to five percent in dollar terms for the foreseeable future, and there might be some losses in some sectors. Which is which is part of the long term investing game. Magnus, are you trying to say that the strategy that you've employed so successfully over the last decade, you might be mulling over changing that strategy as a result of economic conditions changing? You have to. You have to take cognizance of what's happening in the markets. And there's no point saying I'm I'm a growth and a tech bull and I will remain a growth and a tech bull. You know, like our gold bulls will always be gold bulls and our Bitcoin bulls. If the facts change and one has to do some very deep diving analysis into global markets, if the facts change, you change. And um, as I said, I haven't completely made up my mind and it's not only my decision. It is a whole team that we have employed, you know, considering these things. But there is uh, a rising uh, evidence that um, the fun and games is over in the United States. You should be looking for good fund managers in Europe. And also Japan. Uh, uh, and so the message to the investing public is the easy money has been made. You'll have to work a little bit harder to find pockets of growth in the next three to five years. Magnus, what's your advice to new retail investors in the market that came after COVID that have only experienced bumper to bumper 30 40% annual returns? They've never experienced a market downturn. In terms of the psychology behind that, what's your advice? Well, that's one of the lessons that people have to learn if you're in the equity market, that it comes with volatility and it comes with downturns and it comes with periods of losses. And if you're not prepared to accept that, you should not be putting your money in the stock market because if you think markets can only go up and up and up and up, uh, you're in the wrong place. You're in the totally wrong place. You might recall going back a year or so when these young uh, um Investors in the United States were bragging about how easy it was to beat the indexes and how easy it was to beat the fund managers. And they were just buying the meme stocks and they were buying all those. Well, they've given all that money back. All those profits have been given back. They've made no money and they've all capitulated and they've gone very, very quiet. So volatility is part of the game. Losses is part of the game. But you cannot bail. And for, for younger investors especially with tech stocks and even uh, other stocks, you are buying at a much lower level. So if you've got a, a, de- a monthly debit order, and I tell my kids this, you are buying at a very lower level than you did a month or, or three months ago. So there's no change, plan, a change to the game plan. 
South Africa, Magnus, are there any signposts of heading in the right direction? You know, South Africa, if you look at uh, the, the, the chart of the Commodity Index, the CRB Commodity Index, as the COVID struck, the markets went down right down to the bottom. And in April 2020, the Commodity Index uh, started running and it hasn't stopped running. And so South Africa, once again, is the beneficiary of an unexpected boom in commodities, which is coming to our rescue. It's driving uh, our tax revenues. So there's a very nice tax windfall coming our way. But what is interesting, I read a report on one of the uh, websites, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, that they went back and looked at forecasts by top, top fund managers about various sectors. And not one forecast that the commodity cycle would take off like it did. And I don't think nobody could predict that. So South Africa is experiencing a very nice economic windfall higher uh, commodity prices, and uh, the only fear is that the government will see this windfall tax revenues as permanent and start spending stuff on, like, basic income grants that will become permanent and saying, and and that's what previous governments have made exactly the same mistakes. The warning is these uh, cycles are notoriously fickle, and a boom can very quickly turn into a bust. Let's hope the government has learned its lesson, but I doubt it. Magnus, I know you and Brent Hurst are location agnostic when you invest. You've spoken about the prospects or the optimistic prospects of Europe, but what about China and the Asia region as an investment destination of opportunity or simply too difficult to understand and too much risk, therefore? Well, of course, China is notoriously opaque and difficult to understand, different culture, language, etc. But I noticed that 91's uh, uh, smart people have said China could be a surprise this year in the sense that China last year was a very poor performer because of the, the Chinese government interference in tech, tech stock and it has driven down investor sentiment in China and that China could make a nice comeback uh, so so we are looking at China, but we have been putting money in Japan for a very long time. And that is very, very quietly. And under the radar, Japan has done very, very well for uh, investors in, in, in the Brentus Group. Lastly, Magnus, I know you bought a few hundred rands of cryptocurrency the other day. Have you added any more to your portfolio? And what's your general take? Has it changed whatsoever in the last three months or so? Well, I would like to humbly humbly apologize to all those millions of Bitcoin investors all around the world because the day I bought crypto for the first time in my life, that was the peak of the market. It crashed. The word must have got out that Magnus is buying Bitcoin and we're now down 50 to 60%. (laughs) So I apologize to these people. I will not do it again. That's all we've got for you this evening. Thank you for joining the Biz News team for this power hour. We will not be in your company tomorrow. Carrie Adams has you covered as you unwind towards the weekend with her show, Carrie's Corner. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News. Biz News.